Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to uh, the OSINT Bunker podcast. Um, this is season five, episode two, which we are uh, calling the uh, the Great Spy Balloon Crisis. Um, we're not just going to be talking about balloons tonight, thankfully, um, although. Advance warning now, um, I'm aware that George and Austin have, between them, uh, prepared a number of balloon-related puns, so I do apologise to you all in advance if uh, you, you find yourself cringing at different points in the episode, but um, yeah, what can I say? We've got to keep some people happy, eh? I'm joined again this evening by uh, my co-host uh, Austin, George Allison from the UK Defence Journal, and OSINT Technical, um, and we are hopefully... Uh, not just going to be covering the uh, the great balloon crisis um, tonight, but we'll also hopefully be looking into um, the very tragic and uh, sort of destructive events in Turkey today, um, the, the various earthquakes and, and, and aftershocks, um, and the sort of global military and aid response to that. And of course we'll be rounding it up with uh, latest updates from um, the war in Ukraine, um, where I'm sure at that point OSINT Technical will come out of hiding and uh, have something to say. Without further ado, um, I suppose Austin, as the, uh, the resident American who can talk about balloons, um, will we'll pass it over to you. By all means, as the uh, the representative for the population that sort of inflated this out of proportion, um, I feel it's only, uh, it's only right that I get the uh, conversation drifting here. Um, so... Uh, when I think uh, when we talk about the balloon, I think it's important to look at the timeline first. You know, it first came into the public eye over Billings, Montana on Wednesday, last Wednesday. Um, and after that, we've seen a variety of statements coming from both the uh, U.S. Department of Defense, the various congressional offices, as well as some statements from the PRC as well. Um, so. To just jump right into brass tacks, I guess. So some information has come out today regarding the actual size of the balloon. Uh, Reuters was reporting earlier that uh, it was about 200 feet tall, and the payload bay of it was about the size of a regional jet. So this is this is no sort of small device, um, nor is it anywhere near the size you'd see of like a typical weather balloon. So I think it's been well established that this is a uh, surveillance device, number one. And for two, that, uh, you know, of course, it drifted over U.S. airspace, which is typically a, a bit of a no-no between the PRC and the United States. Um, so I think one thing that's important to note was from the get-go, sort of the visibility of this specific balloon. Um, it's come out via the AP that the DOD has dealt with previous balloons of this type uh, over U.S. bases in the Pacific, such as Guam. Um as well as uh, two to three encounters, it's still unclear, uh, of balloons orbiting over areas like Texas and Florida during the previous uh, administration. So this isn't something that's generally new to the DOD. However, I think something that was very clear was the public-facing look of it. Uh, obviously, you know, it hadn't, those previous encounters hadn't really been covered by major media sources, nor had they really been seen um, by public bystanders. And when we look at this case in particular, it's really important to note that because, you know, individuals on the ground could look up in the sky and see this, you know, fairly large object drifting over them, there's a lot of questions being asked. And the DOD really had to scramble to, as well as NORAD, had to come out with a statement quite soon about what is this thing? What's our plan to respond to it? And so on and so forth. 
I think the the use of a balloon by China um, really did take a lot of people by surprise. As, as we all know, balloons cost a lot more than they did even 5, 10, 15 years ago. But I understand that's primarily due to inflation. Outright, <laughs> <laughs> that's the last balloon pun from me. I'm disappointed. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it, it's very Putting clear to the people farm. It's very clear, George, that sort of the economic float necessary to uh, fund a program of this nature is, uh, you know, within the PRC strategy. But I think something that's important to note is, number one, it doesn't appear that this balloon was guided beyond anything other than, you know, the jet stream that has carried, you know, balloons since World War II from various powers over. That's just a lot of hot air. <laughs> over the uh, over the continental <laughs> u.s um so it appears and you know the initial statements from the prc were saying that this was blown off course if you look at you know jet stream patterns and wind patterns i don't really believe that um that being said the fact that there you know there have been previous encounters and those balloons haven't been shot down i think showed that there was either a bit of complacency or a uh a sort of risk taken by the PRC thinking, well, we've done this before. How is this going to be any different? Um, and I think we all saw how different it was when, you know, the U.S. Air Force shot down the balloon uh, about a day ago over uh, near the coast of South Carolina, making number one, the first air-to-air -air kill of an F-22 Raptor since its introduction to service. And two, the first air-to-air -air kill, I believe, in the U.S.'s history since the first Gulf War. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong there. Yeah, so um, Operation Southern Watch, I know there were a few shoot-downs then. Um, I believe there were some over Kosovo uh, in the late 90s. Um, I'm not sure if there were any in 2003. No, you're right. There, def there definitely were some in the Balkans. That's That's correct. Yeah. And that's uh, that, us just thinking fast jets. I'm sure there have been shoot downs of sorts involving helicopters and such since then as well. I think the yep. war zone claimed that the shooting down of the balloon um, is possibly the highest altitude air to air kill ever. Now, that can't be right, can it? Did an F 15 not shoot down a satellite? Yes. But the, the, the I think what they're probably suggesting there is that the satellite is not yeah. air yeah. kill as such, as more a space kill. Um, of course, we could have that whole debate about where does yeah. the air end and where does space begin. But um, yeah, I think that's probably what they were thinking with that. Well, Space Force has been engaged with that debate with the Air Force for a bit of time now. Yeah. And I don't yeah. think they've found yeah. any uh, common ground on that. Um, See, I'm I'm surprised why we didn't use any uh, alternate means to uh, down it. Um, think something like I don't know, maybe pop music could have worked. I'm going to block you now on Twitter. <laughs> um, puns puns briefly aside, uh, one thing I will say from the the OSINT perspective here is that despite the uh, exact location of the balloon not being updated by, you know, publicized at least by um, government agencies. Uh, 
it was generally fairly easy to understand the you know a general location of the balloon based upon uh, the patterns of U.S. Air Force refueling aircraft, which were uh, publicly squawking. Mm-hmm. Um, so those interested going through you know various flight trackers could kind of determine within you know anywhere from 100 to 200 miles where the balloon was. Uh, on a funnier note, there was actually a private balloon flight that took off, I believe, from Oklahoma that was, you know, publicly squawking. And I know there was quite a few thousand people tracking some random balloon hobbyist as he was traveling over, like, Mississippi and being like, that's it. That's the balloon. Um, so it was probably that balloon enthusiast's most popular day, you know, 15 minutes of fame. Um, I, I am fairly sure that was a uh, weather balloon, actually. Okay. It was it was a more of a not 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 a surveillance balloon in the same you know way that the Chinese one was, but you know just a weather monitoring balloon. And of course, at the moment, the um, the U.S. Navy is uh, currently operating in the water around where the debris fell, um, and they're hoping in the coming days to try and salvage um, some of the uh, the sensor equipment that was attached to this Chinese balloon. Um, it will be interesting once they do that to actually see what kind of uh, tech was attached to this balloon because I think generally speaking the images we've seen so far the for me personally I I was seeing a balloon with what looked like a miniature international space station type attachment Um, it it seemed to have what what I can only describe as a lot of sort of uh, solar panel type arrays attached to it did and I'm glad I'm not the only one who in my head made the comparison to the ISS because the the way that that sensor array was set up in that sort of linear fashion with the solar panels branching out to either side and then you have sort of like your tech bay in the middle does look like a space station. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's been what's been communicated from the DoD and from administration officials is that that sensor array along with the solar panels was about the size of a regional jet and. What we saw um, initially from the the Biden administration was it appears, at least from sources um, inside, it appears that the president wanted initially to shoot uh, shoot the balloon down the moment it entered U.S. airspace, mm. but was then sort of um, convinced otherwise by uh, DOD personnel. And what seems to be clear, at least there was concern that shooting it down over um, the continental U.S., could have incurred civilian casualties. And as we're sort of finding more information about the sheer size of this thing, I feel like those concerns are, yeah, exactly. Those concerns are more, are more valid. Um, there have been some, uh, you know, complaints mostly from the, the opposition here in the U S stating that, you know, the previous administration would have shot down the balloon right away. And like the fact that the current one allowed it to drift over the U S represents a huge sort of security breach, um, However, looking at looking at sort of the optics of the entire encounter, I, I can definitely see sort of not just the narrative, but the the mission of trying to gather as much intelligence from this platform as possible before downing it over the ocean being a far less risky maneuver than the potential for, you know, dropping a miniature ISS on somebody's poor house. Yeah, and I, I, a part of me half wonders if if the U.S. administration maybe believes that the that the weather balloon was not transmitting the data it was collecting directly back to China, or you know, you know, 
I mean, at one point in the past, that that was kind of the way that a lot of these um, surveillance kits, satellites, and so on were designed to work. They would fly over their route, collect all the data, and then drop the, uh, the the data package or or transmit the data package at the end of their sort of flight time. Um, whether that's what's happened with the, the Chinese balloon and therefore shooting it down means that America potentially stops some of that data getting through to China, I don't know. But given, as you say, the, the structure of it looking like the International Space Station, I would imagine it probably has some sort of satellite communications ability. And so it would be interesting for the, the Americans, at the very least, to find out exactly what this uh, balloon has been sort of filming or recording um, what what data it's been collecting about the U.S. Yeah, and there there is a bit that's a bit of a puzzling question because when we look at the the gen- general flight path, right? Um, and some administration officials, mostly actually members of Congress, have been talking about how um, one sort of strategic location uh, the balloon flew over was uh, the B two bomber base in Missouri as well as some of the missile fields in Montana, to which, you know, I would say you could generally float a balloon anywhere in Montana or Wyoming and find a silo. It's It's been pretty, you know, it's pretty well known, and it's basically public information, not on absolute specifics, but where U.S. missile fields are. And these locations have been confirmed by various other powers via the Open Skies Treaty, which allowed Russia to conduct surveillance overflights of the U.S. to verify that we were in compliance with uh, strategic arms limitation treaties. So, you know, SALT II and all that fun stuff. Um, and we've done the same to Russia. So mm. you know, the location of ballistic missiles is well known by either side at this point. So I can't imagine anything new was being picked up by this balloon. And on top of that, what I will say is that the messaging from the DOD has been um, consistent so far. Obviously, we don't have a way to truly verify um, the claims of whether or not they're able to successfully jam the transmissions coming from this balloon, as well as the the quantity of data they were able to uh, glean from it via, um, via SIGINT and ISR aircraft, as well as satellites. Uh, but at the same time, the messaging has been consistent. So until I see something sort of indicating that that narrative is off or it's inconsistent, I think we can kind of take them at their word for it. And and, and in terms of that, it, it's been interesting to see the way that China has responded to the entire incident, because I think it's fair to say initially the Chinese government's stance was, we don't know what this balloon is, we're investigating internally ourselves and then they came out and sort of said, no, this is like a civilian-operated um, weather balloon and, and it's just gone off course. Um, and then when America decided to obviously shoot it down, the, the response that China has sort of made to that doesn't really fit with with their story. Um, they've obviously turned around and, and, and made comments along the lines of this, this causes serious diplomatic issues for the two countries. Um, which generally speaking, if it was just a commercial weather balloon, you, it's probably not something you would say. Um, I would agree. No, I think we never said it was an illegal act to shoot it down. Because on international law, it was completely legal for the U.S. to down the balloon. Absolutely. and They, they certainly haven't said it's illegal, but they've, they've certainly... I mean, it was flying without warning, authorization, it was a potential danger to you know people on the ground and aviators. Hmm. 
Yeah, it was. It was. It's very uh, via international law. It was completely within the rights of the United States to shoot it down. Um, but if you, in a bit of contrast to the narrative that we've seen come out of uh, U.S. governmental sources, the Chinese narrative, as you mentioned, um, John, is uh, has been changing uh, on an almost daily basis. Like you said, at first they said it was a civilian balloon off course, and they claimed it wasn't theirs. And then the next day after that, they did assert that it was their own balloon, and then. You know, you have this, uh, the current statements about sort of anger versus um, uh, towards the United States for shooting it down, claiming that the U.S. is escalating the situation, even though, as Technical pointed out, it's completely within the rights of the U.S. to down a uh, foreign aircraft um, in their own airspace that's uh, violating it. But this is also coming on the tails of two pretty major developments in U.S.-Chinese foreign policy of last week, not including the balloon. Uh, the first being the country of Fiji deciding to end its mutual security agreement with the PRC. And on top of that, the Philippines agreeing to allow the U.S. access to four more naval bases. Both events themselves. Right, I had, which I had myself carry, muted yeah. there. I was talking, but um, <laughs> yeah, go I'll, for it. I'll just go back to the start. I mean, at the end of the day, um, China has been close with Fiji for a while. Um, it, it has been viewed as sort of this Chinese. For I mean, it's a friendly state to China. Um, you know, they have close trade relations. Fiji, I believe, was one of the first countries to actually recognize um, the People's Republic of China um, instead of the Republic of China as as a country. Um, it is definitely a sort of hostile area um, to more of those Taiwanese um, uh, or Taiwanese interests. Um but yeah, I mean, it's it's Fiji. There's there's a certain level of, I, I don't think as much strategic importance, but sort of diplomatic importance that China maintains those ties or close ties there. Um, whereas with the U.S. and the Philippines, that's obviously more of a strategic placement, um, especially with the Philippines serving as sort of one of the flanks of the South China Sea. Yeah, I would absolutely agree there. And if we look at, you know, American defense policy towards the South China Sea over the last 10, 15 years, it's been um, exorbitantly clear that shoring up relations with countries like the Philippines, like Taiwan, like Japan have been sort of paramount for the uh, not just the construction, but the reinforcement of previously existing infrastructure there. Yeah, and, and I'll put it this way. So I do not believe Fiji actually has um, a significant deep water port. Um, so it's 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 mainly, you know, just a, a, a shallow institution. Um, or, or not that, but it's, it, it isn't built to sort of handle that significant traffic. Um, whereas the U.S. is reopening up Subic Bay... Um, which is both a, a large deep water port that's received recent expansion and a historic naval base as well. Um, so it's it's a bit more in that sort of strategic back and forth. No, I'm not sure. <laughs> I was muted. Good lord. Um, 
no, I would I would definitely agree, and I would say that the Philippines is is far more as you as you put technical. The Philippines is a far more sort of direct case of this um, back and forth between the U.S. and the PRC, uh, specifically on on defense policy there. Um, whereas I would say Fiji falls more along the lines of some previous conversations that were had last uh, November and October uh, regarding uh, cooperation between China and the Solomon Islands. And it's been very clear that the, the Chinese have been trying to shore up relations with a lot of these Pacific nations uh, beyond the South China Sea. So it is interesting to see a country like Fiji turn away from a previously held agreement and kind of go back to uh, previous cooperation with countries like Australia. Yeah, it's also economic incentive at the end of the day. Um, it, it's, it is who they view as being more helpful in that realm. Um, and, you know, there, there's always the push out there of who's willing to offer more and who's willing to be, you know, the better trading par partner or the better, you know, partner for economic existence or, or the better partner who you think you can rely on. Absolutely. And as we've seen from from the Chinese over the last couple of years with some fairly major uh, economic crises, uh, it's it's not it's not as surprising that the the Fijians have looked at this and decided that Australia, at least in the near term, is a more reliable partner. Yeah, I think until COVID, China was viewed as this very sort of reliable, straightforward institution. Um where, you know, you sort of knew what you were going to get. Maybe you'd have to sign a higher interest loan with them. But, you know, it was it was straightforward. Um, I think COVID kind of broke a lot of that sort of view on China around the world. Um, and now more countries are a bit wary when it comes to dealing with them. But uh, bringing the uh, bringing the conversation briefly back to the balloon, I'm, I'm curious as to you y'all's thoughts on particularly why we're seeing balloons being used as observation platforms as opposed to other intelligence gathering sources that we know the Chinese have, such as human networks, such as satellite arrays. Um, what are what are kind of the thoughts here on why a balloon was chosen? And do we sort of see that this program is going to continue moving forward in the wake of one of them being shot down? I suppose to a certain extent that the use of balloons is, is not all that surprising because at the end of the day it, it's another way for china to sort of defend it uh, test sorry america's defenses and i think we've seen it in the past really you know particularly with the russians and, and and the way that they deal with the uk they regularly send bombers and other types of aircraft to the edge of uk airspace to see what kind of reaction they can provoke and to see whether or not there is a reaction and I suppose to a certain extent, China is obviously looking at a much larger scale of things. And, and, and ultimately, there's probably a, a thinking in China that a near-peer conflict with the US is probably the most likely outcome in the next sort of 15 to 20 years. And so they are very much looking at, well, okay, if America is to be our you know long-term enemy what can we do to gather intelligence what can we do without sort of causing a, an incident and i suppose to a certain extent the fact that we've had uh, this revelation now that there have been these sort of spy balloons 
that have been over US military installations across the Pacific in the past and the Americans have, have kind of not really said anything about that until now and it's only now that one is obviously cited by the public over US sort of home soil uh, the US mainland that the US government is kind of saying yes we are aware of these things this has happened before I suppose that's that's trying to sort of working out now okay so the Americans aren't too bothered if we're flying balloons over sort of their Pacific outposts, but the minute we get it over their mainland, that's suddenly a red line. There is a level of seeing, you know, political ramifications in this of, you know, let's see what happens and gauge sort of what the national response is. And I think in general, at the national level, the response was pretty unified, especially ending with the shoot down. Um, I, I think the messaging has been pretty clear that it would have been dangerous to down over any sort of populated area. Um, uh, whereas, you know, it was immediately down once it was over water and mm. safety of people on the ground could be ensured. Um, and so I generally think the U S positioning on that publicly has been very sort of straightforward and concise in that, you know, this is, was a safety hazard and we took it down in the, safest way possible in order to you know keep people from being potentially injured um and i i generally see that as the sort of defining message going around right now it it would be a bit harder for the chinese to justify the same thing if there was say you know an rq4 operating over the south china sea um Mm. that doesn't pose a direct safety hazard but I suppose in terms of the safety hazard side of things, the question I have is, if the Americans have been aware of these balloons for a while, and it's obviously had to fly over the Pacific in order to get to Montana and then and then continue across to the Atlantic coast, why was it not shot down before it arrived over the US mainland? Is it a case of the US government wasn't too bothered until the public saw it and they realised, actually, no, we have to do something about it now? Or was it a case of the Americans genuinely didn't know it was there because, for whatever reason, perhaps this balloon was a little bit harder to detect than we, we perhaps imagine? And, and is that perhaps part of the reason why China is using these? Because, to a certain extent, a balloon travelling at that kind of altitude doesn't really show up on on sort of the standard radars and other sensors that might pick up say a reconnaissance aircraft like a, a u2 or or, or a, a, an rq4 um or even something so more, just just more a reminder the pacific is kind of big hmm. uh, and as the australians have run into a number of times with their heavy investment in both over the horizon radar and other systems for sort of monitoring in that area. Um, it's kind of hard to track things over the ocean because um, you can't just have radar sites set up to watch it. Um, and so it, it is sometimes difficult to watch those things depending on the, the flight path. Yeah, that's. I would agree on that. Um, at the same time, I think what we've also seen as some uh, precedent being established uh, when it comes to, as you guys mentioned previously, like RQ4 flights over 
the South China Sea or other sort of freedom of navigation missions conducted by either U.S. surveillance aircraft or U.S. ships through, you know, the South China Sea. I think there's precedent there, and it's something that we've been doing for the United States, when I say we, have been conducting for a while. Um, it's not anything necessarily new, and, you know, it's pretty well established that every time a freedom of navigation mission goes through the South China Sea, the Chinese will send up some observation aircraft, maybe fly a couple of jets at it and say, you know, get out and we'll say we're conducting freedom navigation. Everybody has their side. Mission goes on. Um, I, I I don't have a hard time um, thinking that. I think actually, you know what? I, I'm almost fairly certain that NORAD had a handle on tracking this thing for a while. I do believe that I think this is a case of sort of public recognition of the situation demanding a response. Hmm which is why I think a new president has sort of been set in regards to like observation craft over uh, the United States, or in this case, balloons specifically. Because, you know, as we've established previously in this conversation, there have been cases where balloons have gone over the U.S. before and have not sort of resulted in this. I, I do generally believe that sort of the public being in the know here was kind of what escalated uh, the response from the DOD basically saying, all right, it's doing this. We've seen this before to, all right, let's put a, let's get a plan together. Let's bring this thing down and let's glean what we can from it. But as a result of that, I think the president has absolutely been set that, you know, moving forward observation balloons of this nature over the continental U S yeah, or over the last flights aren't, aren't freedom of navigation. No, <laughs> mostly, you know, they, they went over contiguous U S territory. And, you know, within U.S. airspace and without any navigational capabilities, it was kind of flying at the, you know, I mean, it, it, it in general was being taken where the wind took it. For sure. No, and I, I would agree that there is a difference between freedom of navigation uh, flights over the South China Sea where that's, you know, there is international law backing that versus one power flying an observation craft over another's airspace without notice or allowance yeah and i i just think that you know it, it's it's a bit different from the legal perspective hmm. sorry i'm just checking my notes which which were we moving to next uh turkey yeah. i guess yeah. <clears throat> okay yeah i'm less familiar if you want to start us off with that Sure. Um, I can I can do that. Um, so many of you listening will be aware of the recent earthquake in Turkey and Syria. It resulted in a significant loss of life and widespread damage in the region. According to latest reports, the death toll from the 7.8 magnitude earthquake has surpassed 2,600 people, with additional casualties expected. A second quake of 7.5 later struck, further exacerbating the situation. In challenging conditions of snowy weather, rescue teams are actively working to search through the rubble for survivors. The devastating impact of the earthquake has left many thousands of people injured, with reports indicating that approximately 9,700 people at least have sustained injuries and in Turkey sorry, and another 2,000 in Syria. There are international aid flights en route to the country as we speak. I'm currently tracking two Royal Air Force aircraft flying from the UK immediately followed, and I'm talking maybe five, ten minutes behind them, um, to US Air Force C-17s, so aid is starting to arrive in the country. Hmm. 
I'm aware as well that we've got an Israeli uh, flight departing either as we speak or has already departed and is en route to Turkey. Um, they, they were obviously one of sort of the initial dozen or so countries that uh, offered support to Turkey and, and very quickly also offered that support to Syria, which um, in the case of Syria rather unusually has accepted help from Israel um, despite the uh, the obvious diplomatic issues between the two countries in recent years. Yeah, I believe both right now there's currently... Um, let me check. I, the current current aircraft in the air. I'm. Uh, yeah, there is. There are multiple Israeli aircraft uh, inbound um, into southern Turkey right now. I'm not sure which airports yet. Um, there's also uh, USAF and RAF C-17s. There's a U.S. Transcom uh, Atlas Air aircraft. There's Russian um, emergency um, command. So they're you know. Uh, actually what Shoigu used to be in charge of so connecting that to Ukraine a bit um, but they're sending uh, I believe a couple of heavy lifters um, uh, I think there's also there's a Greek Air Force got involved the Italian Air Force multiple Romanian Air Force aircraft sending aid um, I, I, I believe the Greek one is a Greek rescue team uh, flying in on a Greek Air Force aircraft um and then I think there's, of course, that internal air corridor of Turkish aircraft as well. Um, so that's that's uh, it's it, it's a lot. It there's 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 a lot around. Um, oh yeah, Kuwaiti, Bulgarian. Um, there's it, it, it's it's definitely a lot of countries, basically on every side of the issue, mm. um, in Ukraine and, and globally right now, and on multiple different axes. Are, are kind of sending in aid. Um, and of course, right now, I think what people are sort of missing as well, um, or isn't as much of a focus as the devastation in northern Syria as well. Um, there is just a, a significant amount of damage in that area. Yeah. Um, it, it is a war-torn region, and it's going to just, due to a combination of international sanctions and sort of regime um, positioning, it's going to be extremely difficult to get the proper aid there, um, especially since it is still a war zone um, with, you know, Turkish government forces, rebel forces, Kurds, and Syrian government forces all in this small area, which has been, you know, affected heavily by this earthquake. Um, but there, at, at the moment, there is a massive international aid push um, from around the world. Yeah, and, and as you say, it, it isn't just Turkey, it is obviously Syria as well. Um, the vast majority of these quakes today have been very, very close to the Turkey-Syria border. Um, for those who haven't seen, I, I tweeted a map earlier today showing sort of four of the key locations. Um, there have been as, as, as George mentioned, sort of three major earthquakes and then a significant number. I believe at this point we're talking in excess of 120 um, aftershocks. Um, a very, very large number of those registering between 4.0 and 6.0 on the uh, Richter scale. 
Um, so these are these are serious serious tremors, um, and I think something ridiculous like thirty of these have occurred in sort of four large towns or small cities in in southeast Turkey, very very close to the Syrian border, um, which is obviously where at the moment we're seeing a lot of the sort of casualty counts and and, and devastation um, images coming from. Um, but as you mentioned, it, it will no doubt be affecting northern Syria in, in a very, very major way. Um, and I suspect at the moment the reason we are probably not hearing and seeing as much about that is because, as you say, it is a war-torn country. We are talking about a significant number of refugees living in the affected areas. Um, and although there probably won't be a, as much in terms of uh, structural damage, the, the, the impact that it will have on an already very delicate healthcare system for those refugees and and for others in that part of the uh, of the country, it, it it will inevitably have torn that apart. Um, and so the the aid deliveries and and so on from the rest of the world in the coming days and weeks will be essential to trying to reduce the number of casualties that that we see from this. Yeah, I would certainly agree. And if you, um, one source that's very good on tracking earthquakes is the United States Geological Survey, USGS. And they run a website that's updated in just about real time or as quick as they can put out there, sort of the size of earthquakes, who's been feeling it, the range and everything. And it's, I think it's important to note just how large these two quakes were with, you know, tremors being felt as far as uh, Beirut and Lebanon or Nicosia in, in Cyprus. Um, on top of that, I think it's important that we noted uh, just how international some of these aid programs have been and going against some of the previous sort of um, diplomatic ire we've seen from Turkey towards its neighbors and towards its sort of like traditional rivals. I mean, Tactical brought up the, the rescue team coming in from Greece. We've seen significant aid promised from Israel so far. So it'll be interesting to see how the quick reaction of some of these uh, nations towards, you know, aiding Turkey here uh, will play out in regards to their relations with the country moving forward. And on top of that, I'd, I'd like to add, um, George mentioned some of the initial casualties being reported, you know, looking at the size of some of these cities affected, as well as what technical brought up about how uh, the areas in northern Syria, you know, still being an active war zone, it's it's going to take a significant amount of time to sift through the sheer amount of rubble that's been created and come up with, with uh, solid numbers on how devastating this has actually been. Son of a... Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is... This... This is going to be fixed in editing, right, guys? Right? Oh, dear. But um, I, I, I do think this is a, a huge point of international cooperation. Um, it, it's, you know, the, the Middle East is a very earthquake-prone region that isn't as known for being earthquake-prone as it probably should be. Um, but I, I, I do think that... We'll we'll continue to see this 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 cross international cooperation to. I I don't know the the best way to to sort of classify this, but it it will be to either save as many people as possible with immediate response, as we're seeing with the Greeks sending rescue teams, 
um, or, or more longer term aid as well, as we're seeing coming from other countries. And it, it's, obviously we, we've mentioned the casualty figures as they currently stand. And I noticed that the World Health Organization has literally, as we're recording this, just issued a statement um, saying that it believes as many as 20,000 people may have already died um, across Turkey and Syria from these quakes, um, which is just absolutely insane figures. Um, yeah, that'd be in line with historical numbers um, from, from previous earthquakes of a similar size in the region. Um, at, at the same time, I just don't know if we're ever going to be truly able to know the casualties in Syria. Hmm. I think that's entirely fair and on top of that i mean the nearest major city to the epicenter of this quake is uh the turkish city of gaziantep and you know before this quake it had a population just exceeding two million people so we're looking at a fairly uh, not a fairly we're looking at a large city being directly affected here mm. and since the last quake of this um of this size in the area uh, we've had the entire Syrian civil war, and Gaziantep has a sizable refugee population of people fleeing from from Syria in temporary accommodations there. So, I, on top of the existing population numbers, we have to consider the refugee population there as well. Yeah, and uh, of course, Gaziantep was the the location of the first um, of the earthquakes, which was around about quarter past four local time this morning. Um, and that was a whopping 7.8, which so far is the the, the strongest of, of the quakes to have hit Turkey and Syria. Um, but, I mean, just, just I was reading through the stats earlier from um, an, another organisation, uh, not, not the US Geological Survey, but another group um, who monitor earthquakes in Europe. And in the space of the next half an hour alone, there was another four or five quakes that hit that city alone that were in excess of 4.0 on the Richter scale. Um, I think the, the next strongest one that occurred was not even 15 minutes after the first, and it was a 6.7 recorded as. And, it, and inevitably the, the impact that that's had is that, as we've seen from a lot of the footage coming out today, the, the search and rescue teams going in to these cities and, and to these other locations and trying to get people out, and then being hit by further tremors, and literally witnessing the buildings collapsing around them as they try and work to free people. Um, one, one can only hope that, you know, by the end of the day, that, that will sort of be it, and, and, and the, the tremors will, will fade away, and, and, and all these different aid organisations and countries that are sending people in to support search and rescue efforts will be able to do so without the fear of, of further sort of tremors and, and and the associated building collapses that come with them. And of course, with events like this, there always is the uh, the fear. And as we've seen, there have been significant aftershocks. Um, I believe it was one of the Turkish interior ministries that published a video of a crisis committee organizing over the first earthquake being hit by the second. Hmm. I, yeah, I, again, earthquake-prone region. This this is something that happens there, um, and you know the the degradation of of normal resources, especially in northern Syria, caused by long-term civil conflict, is 
certainly a an incredibly bad consequence um, for for people living in the area. It 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 is an issue that that tends to compound. Um, you know, I and I I really don't think that especially with the number of IDPs in northern Syria and southern Turkey, we'll ever have a, a good number of, of the number of people affected. I think that's a very good point. Um, one question I do have is looking forward. You know, we've already established that so far there's been a large-scale international aid response to this. I think we're going to see that effort continue to get larger over this week. Um is the the sort of elephant in the room for turkey beyond this incident is the turkish elections happening in june and over the past uh, six months or so we've seen quite a bit of uh, diplomatic uh, spats between turkey and the west specifically in regards to the admission of finland and sweden into nato as well as the potential canceling of a deal for f-16 aircraft with the united states in lieu of a similar deal of F-35s potentially going through with Greece. Uh, I'm wondering if this is this presents uh, an opportunity through through large-scale aid efforts that should happen regardless for a, a softening of some of these um, diplomatic arguments regarding Turkey as we see Erdogan running for re-election this summer. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the elections will go on. Um, but I, I do think that post-earthquake recovery will be a, a, an issue at hand, depending on how much it gets sort of echoed by Turkish media as well. And I think we can probably move on now to a quick summary of updates Ukraine-Russia, which technical I'll let you uh, take lead on. Oh Lord, don't ah, <laughs> keep forcing me into this. Um, uh, so surprisingly, not much has happened since the last episode. Um, uh, Russia has continued their standard pattern of throwing people at the wall and seeing what works. Um, unfortunately, that has caused major issues. Uh, 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 for them, especially once they're starting to do some of their uh, or some of their few remaining sort of high readiness units or, or high capability units um, towards attempting to break Ukrainian defenses uh, uh, in Luhansk go blast, um, especially around Vuladar and, and in that general forested area there. We've seen some Russian pushes that have been so far unsuccessful and from the looks of it depending on how sort of news comes out uh this evening um and it it, it does depend you know whether or not stuff was true but it it, it like actions continue to take heavy casualties in the area um i i i at this point the the front is fairly static um just standard sort of Russian wave, not just wave attacks, but also sort of armored pushes as we're seeing in the south um, with with some of the more competent units, including remaining VDV assets and, and some heavier mechanized units that are still 
relatively put together um that that kind of been able to to remain in that area um at the end of the day the russians are are losing a massive number of units including you know individual manpower and and actual you know equipment as well just sort of throwing them at the ukrainian lines um just they they i I think the main issue is the russians haven't been able to generate enough force in a single area to actually put together a, a competent or coherent push sort of you know anchored in standard russian doctrine which is using you know mechanized forces to push through initially um you know accompanied by air power or some levels of air power and strategic special operations you know behind the front lines to create you know disarray in order to allow you know the armored and mechanized spearhead to push forward um i i just i don't think the russians have been able to sort of generate that force structure in eastern ukraine for a while now um so they've they've had to turn to these more piecemeal attacks or as as we saw it, it is successful in some places though resulting in in heavy casualties you know seeing that in you know solidar north of bakhmut um that that it wasn't exactly healthy for for the russian forces there um i think continuing into the near future uh we we will see um russian forces continue these piecemeal attacks i i don't know if they'll have the capabilities to generate those large forces i i wouldn't say they don't or they won't ever again um but they they haven't demonstrated that yet has sort of led them to this inability to repeat earlier successes during the war or or even you know mirror what the ukrainians managed to do in eastern ukraine um in the fall um, on the Ukrainian side of things, we saw a major shakeup um, within the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense. Um, so uh, Reznikov was replaced um, by uh, the head of the Intel service. I'm, I forget what his name is, um, but he was a, a, a bit more hawkish on the chances for a Russian invasion uh, last year. Um, so he, he definitely appears out, you know, outright to be competent. Um, I do think this is, you know, Zelensky has still been aggressive on his anti-corruption platform um, and has has been aggressive in cracking down on potential either misuses of resources or or general um, acts that may decrease Ukrainian force readiness. Um, we We did also see some some increased penalties for things like uh, a, a drunkenness and and insubordination um so that that there there is a level where that may affect troop morale um with increased punishments especially potentially taking away um experienced individuals from the front line instead of just docking their pay which was the previous um sort of consequence for breaking those rules there there are more significant ones now um so so we may see these individuals actually removed from the front um which which may in and of itself affect some level of force readiness. So we'll we'll see how that goes. Um, but I, I I think those are the main changes that we've seen in the area since then. Brilliant. And um, I think on that note we will probably call it a day. Um, unless anyone else has anything pressing they want to add. Anyone um, want to talk about tanks? Yeah. Well, I would I would no say tank. the. Uh, 
from our last episode we uh, that we put out just before there was finally some some coherence and conclusion to the entire conversation about modern uh, western main battle tanks going to Ukraine and since then we have seen uh, Germany finally agreed to supply Leopard 2s as well as Leopard 1s. We've seen um, the British uh, commit to supplying Challenger 2 tanks. We've seen the United States commit to supplying Abrams tanks. And then we've seen various other countries supplying some of their Leopard stockpiles as well, such as Poland, Denmark, and Spain. Um, so I'd say that's a, a fairly significant update for, since our, our, our last episode on that conversation. But I think it's you know also important to know that it's going to take months for Ukrainian crews to be trained up on these uh, platforms as well as to transport them over to, you know, positions where they can begin making an impact in the war itself. Yeah, I know the Canadians have already started delivering units to, uh, uh, to, to at least Poland for training units. Um, and, and Ukrainian tankers have started to cha- train on British Challenger tanks. Um, within the UK, um, but we still that 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 won't become a frontline thing probably for the next few months, and we'll we'll see because it, it I mean again the, the it's the two new assault brigades who are likely to receive at least some of the tanks um, into a sort of integrated uh, 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 mechanized force um, utilizing Western uh, armored personnel carriers and armored fighting vehicles and and Western tanks as well. Cool. Um, anything else we want to add? I think that about sums it up. I don't have any puns left. So. <laughs> ran ran out of balloon puns. You have have you been deflated? Oh, you you have really burst my bubble. <laughs> and on that note, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening. This has been the Ocean Bunker Podcast, um, and we will be back with another episode in about two weeks' time. Thank you very much for listening.